Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, we're ravenous for the whiteout of Snowy Suspense. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and, uh, you know, why don't you just come and join with me? I, I went on this big camping trip, and a few people got lost. I think they might have eaten each other. Everything will be fine, though. I am not gonna stab you in the back. I mean, you can trust me, right? And I am Adam Thomas, and... I am completely and utterly forgettable. Oh, Adam, don't say that about yourself. Come on. I remember more about you than I do maybe one of the films we're going to talk about tonight. That's fair. I remember more about me than... I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Yeah, no, that movie's terrible. (laughs) You know yourself like the back of your hand. Oh, that's new. You're right. (laughs) That looked at. Uh, well, welcome everybody to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, in which uh, every week Adam and I cover a good and a bad feature that we pick at the end of the previous episode related to a topic, and usually we'd like to tie it into something, but uh, there's not as much uh, stuff coming out this week, so we uh, decided to do something fun and do a snowy suspense, which basically kind of entails any kind of like big like thriller that takes place in the middle of the snow, which, you know, we kind of talked about this at the end of our last episode, Adam, uh, a much more fertile subject matter than we initially kind of thought it would be. Oh, definitely, man. Yeah, for sure. I mean, instantly, like, as soon as we thought about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, what are we going to do? And then, oh, there, well, there's this one. Oh, yeah, this one, too. Oh, yeah, this one. And then you kind of like, even to get ideas, I look it up online, and there's a ton of them, a ton of them. That would be, you know, viable. I mean, think The Shining or Cliffhanger or any of that would work. Or even, yeah, if it does, if we want to go even more slightly genre angle of it, like The Thing. A great example of a very snowy, suspenseful movie. Either one of them. Oh, we could have done a double feature of those movies. <laughs> the Thing and The Thing. Yep. And then yep, for my redo, it would have been The Thing from Another World. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, I'm curious, Adam, as someone who is uh, has more experience with the snow than I do yeah, up there in yeah. Michigan, uh, what do you think uh, makes this such an interesting subgenre? Well, I think, A, because the con- obviously the conditions provide their own sort of, I hate to put it this way, but antagonist, because, you know, you could freeze, get lost real easy. Uh, the, the whiteout situations are real. Um, and plus, let's just be honest, 100%. Red splashing across white looks good. That is true. Yes, the contrast there. It's, it's uh, very much it's cinematic in of itself. It, just, it looks artistic, even if you're doing the most garbage, like, ketchup spray. Right, <laughs> exactly. White, just like, oh, that says so much. <laughs> ah. Art. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, and I think even just as somebody who, you know, has more experience with, like, a warmer climate, I find the cold uh, inherently terrifying. Uh, like, when I came up to visit you in Michigan, uh, there was a point where, like, my tear ducts nearly froze up <laughs> while I was walking to your car. Yeah, and I uh, that night. <laughs> to be fair, though, 
it was pretty cold that night. I mean, I didn't have that much of a problem with it, but yeah, it was cold. Right, you were just like, what's the matter with you? You're just like, I, I can't feel anything. Whatever. Let's get out of here. I could never feel anything. Get used to it. <laughs> You're numb to the, the coldness for sure on that. Uh, but but yeah, it also just works because like you mentioned, there's not just the inherent uh, sort of antagonist angle to the weather conditions, but also the atmosphere of it. Like in some of the more interesting ones were like, there isn't even as much snow as much as there is just like darkness. Like, there are certain movies where they take advantage of the fact that the snow also makes it so, like, dark and impenetrable to, like, you're just walking into the void, basically, in some of these movies. That's inherently just scary. It's the unknown, truly. Yeah, man, for sure. And like I said, you get turned around out there in the snow. If you're not prepared, you are probably going to die. Yes, uh, the ominous, scary thoughts there. But we're not here to talk about that existential dread here today. I know, man. What what would it even mean, right? Like, who would miss me? (laughs) Would you ever want to view your funeral, bro? <laughs> Thank you all for taking, you know, escaping your daily lives to listen to this existential dread. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk about two movies we picked at the end of the previous episode. Uh, first, we'll be talking about what we can remember about Adam's bad pick of Whiteout. And then we'll be talking about my good pick of Ravenous. Uh, both movies that take place in the dark, desolate snow to some degree. Uh, some of it is a bit more authentic than the others, as we'll get into right now with Whiteout. It is the most isolated landmass on the planet. There is no permanent population. no horizon, no shadows, there is only white. We have a real situation developing. What happened out there? We were out looking for meteor samples, and then the radar went off the chart. We hit something big. White out. Yikes! <laughs> so, Whiteout came out uh, September 11th, 2009, and uh, was from director Dominic Senna, and uh, had a bunch of different writers based on a graphic novel uh, by Greg Rucka and Steve Leiber, and I was thinking about this, you know, while watching this movie and not soaking in any of it, um, that this feels kind of like it was at that time, like, post-Sin City and especially 300, where studios were just like, oh, fuck, uh, just greenlight any graphic novel. Just do it now. We need a graphic novel like pitch now immediately. That is 100% what happened. But, you know, I, I got to be honest, though, it did birth a lot of good ones. Like you said, 300, Road to Perdition, History of Violence. You know, a lot of those are based on graphic novels, and they really work. Uh, this is, you know, I'd say ultimately one of the most forgettable out of those. Yeah, Adam, before you forget everything about it, Fuck. can you give people potentially at least a, a brief plot synopsis for a wideout, given this was your pick? All right. Uh, uh, Kate Beckinsale stars as a U.S. Marshal. Something happened to her in her past as a law enforcement officer, so she's taken sort of this post out in the Antarctic, uh, and she's about to retire, you know, and doesn't want to be involved in law enforcement anymore. But then they get a call about someone seeing what they think is a body out in the like the waste tundra 
So they have to go investigate. It turns out it's a murdered victim. Then they find the hull of a crashed Russian plane, which the movie opens up with, which is very like, what is happening? And then it kind of goes on from there trying to discover who the killer is. That's basically it. Yep. Uh, That is at least the basic plot. And, you know, on paper, I wouldn't mind like a fun, small thriller that kind of has that angle to it. Um, the trouble is, as we've kind of teased throughout all of this, uh, Whiteout lives up to its uh, correction fluid uh, name in that uh, the moment you watch it, like it'll just dry in your eyeballs for like a couple seconds and then just disappear entirely. It is completely forgettable on every conceivable level. Yeah, 100%. Like I remember a lot of it just because it is still fresh, but I'm not going to remember it in a week. There's no way. Like I forced myself to hold on to certain things. Like the really bad CGI of her partner falling out of the window that they show several times, how bad Gabriel Mott is in this and how just much it reminds me, like as much as I like Beckinsale, not a lot of range, not a big leading actress. Uh, She's fun in the underworld movies. She's incredibly beautiful. Uh, Seems like a nice person, but maybe not the greatest of actresses. And, uh, yeah, the Antarctic, for the shots that is really taking place there, uh, is beautiful, but terrifying and desolate. And then the rest is just kind of like, oh, hey, picket fences. Whoa, you, okay, not a shocker. Hey, don't forget about the incredibly terrible green screen, which I think is way more of it than, like, the actual, like, frozen tundra. There's a lot of Oh, points. yeah, well, like I said, the dude falling from the window. No, 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 but even just people walking outside the station where it's like, like Tom Skerritt does that golf thing at the beginning, which by the way, Tom Skerritt's also in this. It's like some of the worst green screen I've ever seen where it's like, is this like an internet reviewer green screen circa 2009 instead of like a major motion picture? It does look like someone just put up a screensaver of Alaska behind them and did like a zoom acting bit and then just went in and polished up the edges. Yeah, like it's it's exactly. pretty fucking terrible. Like it's pretty bad. The thing is, like they really want it to be like, oh god, who is it? Oh, what is the mystery? What is the mystery? And I will be fair, they kind of set it up enough to be like, well, it's Gabriel Ma. Like, there's no question. Like, this is super stupid. But I so once they get back, and then you know, spoiler, but Tom Skerritt starts poking around. You're like, oh no, it's Tom Skerritt. Like, there's no question. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily the most engaging mystery to where it's like, we have one particular red herring, and there's only, like, one other character of much significance, honestly. Yeah, but then, like, like, the Australian guy? Like, who is this guy? Oh, yeah, the one's just like, oh, I might. I'm on the station. Nothing's wrong with me. And then, ha-ha, I want the diamonds. Yeah, like, what the fuck? Which also, it just feels weird with, like, this movie, maybe it's because of the expectation of the thing, necessarily, but this is a movie that constantly feels like it's gonna make the twist of, like, it's a genre thing. Like, it's an alien, or a monster, or something like that. The way that it's just, like, it's attempting to shoot it and everything. And every single time, it just ends up being like, oh no, it's a way lesser, less exciting twist on that. Like, particularly, that the big motivation for everybody is diamonds? Russian uncut diamonds. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. And this, the awful sort of, the shit with them at the end where it's Gabriel Mott, Kate Bexell, and the Australian guy, and they're on the lines, like, going back and forth, which feels like for fucking ever, by the way. The whole climax of this, where they're on the lines and chasing each other through them. It's the most unexciting, air quote, thriller moment of the movie, and it takes forever. But it is, the the ultimate demise of the Australian guy is some of the worst special effects I, I've seen in a long time. 
even in this yeah, movie. Yeah, a lot of, especially the over-editing that they try and do around, like, them walking around outside with, like, the rope that they're clinging on to. Oh, it lasts forever. That's the thing, this movie, what is it, an hour and 37, hour and 40, something like that? Yeah. Um, it feels like almost double that. It is such a slog to get through. It took me a long time, because I had to keep pausing it and getting up, because I was, like, nodding off. I'm like, if I don't move around, I'm not going to be able to watch this. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, and especially with, like, you to go back to Beckinsale, um, I think with Beckinsale, I agree it doesn't have necessarily a huge range, but once she's utilized well, like, in those underworld movies, I would argue, she's a lot of fun. Even this, like, I could see a world where she could handle being, like, U.S. Marshal on a base thing, like, this, like, this role in a better context. It's just the trouble of, like, they don't even give her the opportunity to attempt to do anything. Because, like, even at her worst, because I agree she doesn't have a lot of range, but, like, I've seen her try and yeah. fail, but at least, like, spectacularly. Like, I, I just want to shout this out, because, one, we don't have a lot to say about this fucking movie. But, yeah, um, speaking of completely forgettable movies, um, I was one of, like, five people who saw The Disappointments Room in a theater. Oh, God. was this movie that, like, came out in 2016, bombed horribly. It had, like, a $900,000, like, opening weekend. Is that the one with Ben Kingsley as well? No, no, not Ben Kingsley. It's, like, her and Lucas Till is also in it. It was the second movie written by Wentworth Miller, who had done oh, the previously. Right, I'm thinking of Stonehurst Asylum, which is also another Beck and Sale one. Right, but this Kingsley. movie, Ooh. like, there's a scene uh, that was at least in the theatrical cut that I saw in which uh, she has to, like, attempt to do, like, a party thing for, like, a bunch of neighbors that come in, but she is, like, a drunken mess, and um, it is, like, some of the most over-the-top wailing acting, which, by the way, is not in any version of the movie that was released on home video, apparently. I am, like, one of five people who has seen this scene, which I'm almost convinced, because, like, I was doing a horror podcast at that time, and I'm almost convinced that, like, me railing about that fucking movie and that scene in that podcast convince them to edit it out of the movie i mean maybe <laughs> it's a bummer because it's the best scene of the whole fucking movie because she's going like over the top and big and dramatic in a way that's just like well this is memorable if she had done at least one bit of that in whiteout i would have had something to talk about related to whiteout right i agree like i said she doesn't have a lot of range she can be capable of leading like an underworld and stuff like that um but in this they just don't give her anything to do except hey by the way like your first three minutes on screen get in your real tight underwear and get in the shower. Yeah. You're like, well, okay, this is fucking dumb. And then have a will they, won't they with pretty much every male character in that thing. <laughs> like, all right. I just, it just doesn't work. It, it cheapens anything they're trying to do. And then, like I said, and even her past where her partner was going to betray her to the drug lord. It's so fucking stupid. It's so stupid. Yeah. And then they have a whole scene where she's, Flashing back to literally the attack that happened right before the scene. Like where she's attacked when they first when she first gets to the one base. And then it's showing it in flashbacks and she wakes up because she was having a nightmare about it. Right. There's a similar thing also where like they piece together once they arrive at the crashed plane about like, oh, this is what happened here. And it looks like this and this happened. And we see footage from the opening. And it's like, yeah. why do we even have that opening? Like you could have just had this opening take place like here. Right, I, I agree. In the flashbacks. In. Yeah, yeah, in the flash. Because when the movie started, I swear to God, when it started, it was in like a Russian plane, and you know, it's completely in Russian, and I was like, shit, am I watching the wrong movie? I literally had to pause it and check. Like, I, this isn't what I've heard about this movie, because it's just so out of left field, and doesn't fit with any of the rest of the movie. Yeah, 
it's very weird. But yeah, like I, I will say probably the most memorable thing that actually happens in this movie for me is the fact that for, for Beck and Sailor, I think Sailor's the element of it. There's a point where um, she gets attacked and then her hands end up being frostbitten uh, because of the way they're handled. And then Tom Skirt has to like snap them off. And I'll give it credit for like, that's something I didn't expect for this movie. That our actress would ha- end up having eight fingers all the way from like the midway point to the end of it. Yeah, and that scene where she pulls away from the wheel is brutal, where you see the skin peeling off on her hand. Yes. Like, that is brutal. That's probably the only moment, that and the actual finger chopping, but are the only moments of the movie where I was like, ooh, fuck, ooh. The rest is just kind of, like, bland. And like I said, yeah. Gabriel Mott, wow, is he bad. He is so, so, so bad. Like, right. I want to say the spirit was before this, or maybe right after? It was right before this, because that was, like, December 2008. So that's Right, like and right then before. this came out, and it's like a one-two punch of, this guy is not a bankable movie star. Yeah, so then he went off to Suits. Suits, right that, and then, like, he did, like, either the second or third direct-to-DVD sequel of SWAT, and stuff like that. So, I mean, he's fine there. He could stay there. Right, because the thing is with that, dude, like, his introduction scene... I told you it was, like, one of the most baffling things I've ever seen. Because, like, so much of it, his face is not on camera for his dialogue. It is 90%, like, either the back of his head, maybe a double, or his dialogue over, like, close-ups of Kate Beckinsale. And it's so bizarre. It's, like, to the degree that I almost thought, like, is he dubbed? Like, what's, what's going on with this? What's happening here? After that point, he has, like much more like on camera like actual moving his mouth time but this introduction scene is just like bizarre to the degree i'm just like was this like heavily redubbed and reshot or whatever because i don't get what the fuck's happening here he's so boring there's zero sort of chemistry actually i think that's one of the main problems of the movie too even if a bad movie if there's chemistry between all the different actors it would work I mean, I guess Beckinsale and Scarrett might have the most chemistry, but it's just compared to everybody else's complete lack. Yeah, and even then, it's the chemistry of two people who are like, we're probably better than this, right? Yeah, we're both we're better than this. Like, we are better than this, right? <laughs> yeah. I was an alien and, and picket fences, for Christ's sake. Yeah, like it feels like the scenes between the two of them, they're the most earnest they feel throughout the whole movie is when they're t- both talking about, like, you're going to leave? Yep. I'm going to leave. Oh, good. I want to leave, too. I want to get the hell out of here, right? Yeah, I want to leave, too. It's just like, yep, I, I get it from you two actors. I can get why you would want to leave. I know. I fucking did. I'm in my own house. I would rather go into the real cult than watch any more of the CG. I'd rather... You know, you got to figure... <laughs> it's January in Michigan. It's cold out. I'd rather walk outside with no coat on than, than like, sit here and watch this fucking thing. Just like Tom Skerritt at the end of the movie with his, like, brilliant thing, which is like, oh, it turns out he was behind everything, so he was like... I know I'm not going to make it out there, so I'm going to take one last stroll outside. It's like his weird, like, suicide. Uh-huh. Just like, okay. I know. So she's like, yeah, okay, good. Well, how are you going to explain that now? So, great. Good for you. By the way, this guy's uh, associate tried to kill everyone. But, uh, yeah, all right. No, he needs the redemption moment. Yeah, it's just, like I said, it, it's not that long of a movie, but I know I'm struggling if I pause a movie for the littlest excuse. Like, thought I heard something in the other room. Like, oh, I'll go see if that was one of my cats. Oh, there, what are you doing? Oh, I'll sit down and pet it for five minutes. Like, I just got to move. Jehovah's Witness came by and was like, yes, please yeah, exactly. tell me Yes, everything. please come in. Yes, absolutely. What now, what is Latter-day Saints? Explain to me in detail. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, this is definitely going to be one of those that we run into 
you know, not all the time, but frequently enough on the show where it's just, it's ultimately its biggest sin is that it's just so forgettable. Right. Where it wouldn't be like one of the worst movies we cover necessarily because we will not remember it by the time we do our episode next week. It's not bad enough to be offensive. It's just bad enough to be forgettable. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of why I get why it was not very successful when it came out. Uh, made $17.8 million on its $35 million budget. Um, so it was uh, not necessarily a big, wild, crazy hit. Um, and I think, yeah, it just shows that, like, with the graphic novel element we mentioned, like, just because you have that and even, like, the beck and sale, where it almost feels like the movie in its advertising is trying to tease, like, oh, this could be very underworldy. Because Kate Beckinsale wasn't really in. This was the same year as um, Rise of the Lycans, which he has only like a small cameo in of those underworld movies. The third one? The third one? Yes. Right. Oh, right. And it's like flashback cameos. It's not even like a like a new footage. I think it's footage from the first two. Right, right. Because she was too busy doing stuff like this. We're just like, yeah, yeah look, I'm going to try something a bit different. And it's like, well, I'm going to scurry back over for part four. Oh, don't forget, right she, also, she also did Click in the meantime. Click was a bit earlier. That's like 2006. So that's around that's, the time of like the second Underworld. Well, that's still whatever terrible movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, a more memorable rather, terrible movie. I'd rather right. I'd rather talk about Click than Whiteout. You know what? Let's just talk about Click. So, anyways, Click. The so, plot uh, is <laughs> December 2006. Adam Sandler falls asleep in bed, right? And then he wakes up and it's Christopher Walken, and he's crazy. Turns out he's deaf. Whoa. Yeah. Whiteout is, yeah. uh, it was a rough one. Like I said, I, I knew watching it, as soon as I put it on, I I mean, it fits the bill. It's a bad, snowy suspense movie. Uh, but unfortunately, I wish it was more of a memorable bad. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, it, it's just there's there's not much uh, to really say very positively or extremely negatively, just generally negatively um, about it. But like Beckinsale and Tom Scarry are there. They're earning paychecks. And uh, most everything else about this movie is very poorly done, but in a way that it's like very one in one ear out the other kind of bad movie. Where it's just like, I'm not remembering scenes as they pass by me, basically, because there's nothing really compelling or interesting. And even with the snowy suspense of it all, because uh, the snow looks so bad and poorly put together and fake, uh, you don't really get that sense of atmosphere, and you don't really get that sense of isolation for any of these people. Um, it just feels uh, very dull and unremarkable. And uh, not, you know, worth your time. Agreed. But, Adam, let's go talk about a movie I think we'll have more to say about in general, in detail, with uh, Ravenous. I'm sending you to California, Fort Spencer. We have four missing soldiers, Captain, and no bodies. We need a supportable explanation. Captain John Boyd is out to solve a mystery, but he is about to discover something he never imagined. Wingigo. Man eats the flesh of another. Now, one man must choose. We need others. Between having dinner and being dinner. Good gracious. Eat. To live, don't live to eat. Ravenous. Bon appetit. (laughs) So 
The Ravenous came out on March 19th, 1999, um, and uh, was a movie that I picked as a good pick, but I had not seen this before, and I had heard just very weird, interesting elements of this, because this was also a movie that didn't do very well. Uh, it cost $12 million, made about $2 million in 1999, one of the big movie years, got very much overcrowded. Um, but, you know, watching it now, um, I completely get why this was not commercially successful, hot take. Uh, this doesn't seem like much of a crowd pleaser. There's no market where this movie would be successful. No, not at all. <laughs> like, just... uh, if you're unaware of this movie, which I know most people probably would be since it's a bit more obscure, uh, basically this uh, takes place around the time of uh, the Mexican-American War, um, and uh, we follow our main character, Captain John Boyd, who has just been awarded like a big uh, you know, congressional honor for the military after capturing a fort. Uh, from the Mexican army, but it turns out he did so by being a coward and then really like playing dead, being hauled off with a bunch of corpses, and then surprise ambushing everybody. Um, so his superior is like, you know what? We're not going to execute you like we should because you're a coward, but uh, instead we're going to go ahead and uh, give you a promotion and then force your ass all the way to California, which at this time in American history is kind of like desolate. There's really not much of anything for, especially in the winter, uh, where this, when this takes place. Um, it's mainly, he goes over to the skeleton crew outpost, uh, where there's a couple people that are there and they're just kind of like, yeah, we meander and kind of like, um, dwindle away our time, just kind of like keeping up things and kind of surviving, uh, we don't, but we don't do much else except occasionally help whoever might pass by. And uh, that happens uh, when this random stranger, uh, played by uh, Robert Carlyle, uh, shows up freezing and like nearly naked, and they warm him back up, and he's like, uh, I was part of an expedition crew that went out into the woods, and we got lost, and, uh, you know, I was trying to help everybody, but they ended up eating each other, basically, so there's this cannibalism element going on, and I had to, you know, eat some of the scraps that were left over just to survive to some degree after we'd eaten our dog and like whatever animals had scurried by and we were starving. And so uh, I know there's a couple people up there though, who are still probably there and everyone's like, you know what, let's go and have a rescue mission. Let's save these people that are in this cave out in the woods. And uh, this Robert Carlyle joins all of them, including like Guy Pierce and most of the other people in the troop. Um, and when they arrive, uh, they realize this is an ambush. Uh, from Robert Carlo, who turns to be a crazy cannibal man who has weird, vague powers because he's eaten people. And uh, the movie only gets weirder from there. Yeah, it's a fucking wild ride, dude. This movie is such a weird, strange little thing. Uh, just from the sort of acting choices that are made here, the plot, the score is fucking nuts. Yeah. Like, I love it, though. I, it's one thing that people either love it or hate it. I kind of love it because it's so bizarre. Like, what is happening? Shout out, by the way, the, the score composed by uh, both Ni Michael Nyman, who was a traditional classical composer, and Damon Alburn from Blur and the Gorillas. That makes sense. There are a lot of points where, like, a little bit of, like, score that's, like, sort of Casio keyboard would play. I'm like, is fucking Clint Eastwood about to start? <laughs> <laughs> like, when Carlisle starts chasing the one guy the other religious guy and it's playing like a like an old school like like an old banjo like let's have fun and jamboree like it's fucking <laughs> wild um you know but i do want to mention most of the supporting cast uh, i do love guy pierce i think robert kyle you know we'll get into it a little bit more but i think he's one of the like not mentioned great villains of this era like i think he's fucking great he's just chewing the scenery uh not to be silly but um 
<laughs> for this movie, how dare you? Yeah. Also, a really good, like, small role from David Arquette. Like, I yes. think he's really fun in it. Uh, I think Neil McDonough is really good. Yes. Um, our guy from Virtuosity, who I hated in Virtuosity, but here he's Major Knox. I really like him, too. Right, yeah, Stephen Spinella. He's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Everybody really works. Even, you know, I don't want to say, okay, fuck, fuck it. Jeffrey Jones, even though he's a horrible piece of shit, fuck that guy. Horrible piece of shit, fuck that guy. Terrible, awful person. Still a good performance. That's the bummer. That guy is, like, while he's an awful, awful piece of shit, he's a very good character actor. Yeah, but a horrible, horrible piece of fucking shit. Yes, for sure. Yes. But, yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, the, the ensemble that's created here, I think, is really interesting, especially earlier on when we get, like, the weird like how they pass their time at this fucking like nothing of an outpost where it's just like, um, like David, Knox Arquette drinks. Just, right. Knox yeah. drinks out. David Arquette smokes like the loco weed as they call it. Yeah. So probably gets... it's probably peyote or something. Right. Let's um, form of that. Yeah. Jeffrey Jones reads and eats walnuts. And Guy Pierce is just stewing in his own hatred of just like, Oh God, why am I here? <laughs> I hate being here. So He's much. in pure misery. He wants to be dead so bad. Yes. And then Neil McDonough is just constantly alpha mailing. But yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you liked it, because I was definitely curious. I kind of knew, I'm like, this movie is too weird for Thomas not to like. Like, it's so crazy. It's such a weird, dark comedy, but there's genuine moments of, like, stomach churning, like, oh, God, fucking gross. And it's just filled with really good performances. Well, yeah, but I'll say this. It was an interesting experience watching at least this first time, because there wasn't a lot of, like, laugh out loud moments for me or moments that I just was because like well often when I watch one of these movies I will either like laugh really loud or have like a, oh my god what the fuck is this kind of thing I was just kind of like sitting there in stunned silence just like this happens right yeah no I, I <laughs> right and it, it's one of those ones in hindsight now if you watch it again you'll probably chuckle but it's right. just you because who the fuck knows what kind of movie you're getting into with this one it's one of those where like I don't this is wild. But I do want to go back to the sort of the Carlisle of it all. Because I want to say this is like, he wasn't really big yet. Like, I don't well, think... He, he'd been in train spotting, which I would argue put him at least on a lot of radars. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of radars. But like, this is pre-Full Monty, pre-his James Bond movie he did. All no, I believe stuff. this is the same year as The World Is Not Enough. So this is around that same is it? time. Yes. Okay. He, I mean, he's a, he's a genuinely very good character actor. Like, yeah, he's I agree a great he character. He never gets enough, like praise especially no. in this movie he is a fucking maniac he is a fucking maniac well they're all in the cave and he's doing that weird shit with his hands where he's like pointing and going ha, 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 and like walking back and forth and digging and then doing it again and then digging You're like what is he doing he's a fucking feral animal it's so weird and he has to yeah completely so facets because initially when he's like discovered and he's like warmed up and he's like oh i have so many horrible things you believe that ptsd yeah he tells him i'm a man of god oh my god i had to eat you know blah, and you're like, right you believe all of that like ptsd there then he turns into a wild fucking animal for like the middle of the movie and then later on after like guy pierce is like okay i'm gonna get out of this i had to eat a bit of neil mcdonough but that's fine i'll keep going and then when he gets back it's just like oh hey look uh we have a new general who's gonna come in and take uh jeffrey jones's place oh look it's general ives it's fucking distinguished distinguished gentleman colonel ives right just like oh uh, yes please i'm here (laughs) to serve and i respect authority and everything's like oh god (laughs) like the way that guy pierce crumbles i would do the exact same thing just like oh god no he falls into the wall and cowers like a dog yes like he's like i'm done oh fuck this is what oh this is insane 
And the amazing speech that he gives at a certain point where he's just like, I thought you would have uh, had a bit more, but I know you have that hunger, don't you? You really want to feast on him, don't you? It's just like, oh, fuck. Oh, when he's outside, before before he fucking mortally wounds him and yes. forces him to eat. Yes. Uh, Major Knox stew. <laughs> just so fucking gross, too. But I, uh, yeah, I, the thing about Guy Pierce, Guy Pierce, I've always liked Guy Pierce. In this, he's good. Uh, he's quotes the lead, but I, he doesn't, to me, have as much to do as a lot of the other characters. But I think it kind of works in that way, where you just kind of see this guy in this one facet of his life who has to go through this crazy thing, who's just like, I'm done, dude. He's so done with life at this point. He very much feels kind of like a, um, you know, sort of like a blank slate as well for like the audience. Mm-hmm. Where, like I said, right. if I went through all this shit, I would also be like cowering and like shriveling up. And the way that he especially goes from like disheveled but like healthy to like on death's door by like near the end of the movie when he's like being forced to eat and he's just like, oh man, that guy looks like he's dead. He's being like propped up like fucking Weekend at Bernie's. He's not yeah, he even. Looks... No, right. <laughs> he's a mannequin man. Um, yeah. Also too. You know, one of my favorite bits, I do like the ending fight between Carlisle and, and Pierce. It is brutal. Like, it's brutal. Those guys fucking hack each other to pieces. But I love the bear trap moment of Robert Carlyle. You know, that was sneaky and laughs. Right. The Islam was just like, oh, touche. Well done. If you die first, I'm definitely going to eat you. You're like, oh my God, this is fucking insane. But if I die first, are you going to eat me? <laughs> That's the question. Right. It laughs and but- it dies. But, I mean, the big moment for Guy Pierce, of course, in this movie, at least his character, is that fucking fall that feels like something out of Hot Rod. <laughs> I know. I know. And then with the, the bone out of the leg. Well, because, like, and... well, like the, the big, like, all the lead up to that, we're just like, he's uh, going to face off against Robert Carly. He's like, what are you going to do? You already tried to shoot me, and I just got back up like I'm the fucking Terminator. What are you going to do? He's like, you know what? Nope. And I'm going to take my chances with the cliff. I'm just jumping like, off jumps. a cliff. He jumps off, hits every single branch of a tree on his way down, and then rolls, and then hits Neil McDonough's body, who has been stabbed and, like, fallen over. And then he both they both, like, tumble into, like, a little crevice where, as you mentioned, uh, his leg has been horribly hurt to the point where, like, the bone's protruding out. And Neil McDonough's still alive briefly, and then eventually dies, but has that creepy look on his face. His, like, oh, it's death, so scary. His death mask is so upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it's so upsetting. Yeah, that too, though. I, even when I watched this the first time and watching it again this time, I've seen this movie several times now, but when Neil McDonough comes back alive and chokes him, I've always, like, obviously it's really happening, but it's one of those where, like, how? This is so fucking crazy. Like, why is he alive again and choking him? Like, what is happening? I mean, there's a lot of that. Even, like, Robert Carlyle is the one where just, like, that dude is constantly like, getting up because they establish, like, they connect this to, like, the Wendigo because there's, we didn't mention, there's a couple, like, Native American yeah, folks who are on who there. Like, uh, George, played by Joseph Running Fox, and, and Martha. Martha, the one female, played by yeah. uh, Sheila Tusi. And they briefly bring up the idea of, like, the Wendigo, which is something that's also been, I think, brought up a lot more recently in, like, sort of genre stuff. Yeah, like Antlers does it and stuff like that. Right, right. But from what I understand, at least, uh, and keep in mind, I have a very limited cursory knowledge of, of looking at the Wikipedia article for Wendigo. This at least apparently has a is a bit closer to the legend in terms of like the whole like oh there's like a big antler monster thing or whatever is not part of the original legend. Like, no, the legend no, is more no. of like a werewolf thing basically, where it's like they, like they kind of mentioned here, where it's like whoever basically is eats con- and consumes flesh will become like a monster that will strive to turn others. Uh, yes, and Wendigo was originally an Incredible Hulk villain, uh, yet was the villain in the first appearance of the Wolverine. <laughs> oh. 
Right, I'm sure where it originated, and there's no other, like the Native nope, American. Nope, that's stuff. what it is. They stole <laughs> it from us. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Like, you just eat the flesh and you take on the man's power. And then yeah. I think, if I remember right, they added, like, the regenerative, you know, sort of capabilities and stuff like that. Um, but that's fine. Who gives a shit? It ends up becoming more like cannibalism is kind of like a vampirism thing. Which is where I kind of came up with the idea of, um, if you are a fan of, if you've seen Bones and All out there in the audience, uh, this is basically like Bones and All's weird, funny Gen X father. That's what this movie fucking feels like. (laughs) It's just like, there's a lot of like the connecting threads of like the dirtiness and that kind of vampirism to cannibalism element with this. But this is like the much goofier version of that as opposed to like Bones and All looks at uh, their dad, Ravis, just like, Dad, you're so like silly and I'm a much more like edgy fucked up movie Although, for the record that movie's great uh but it's like yeah, there's it. a lot of connecting dna between the two i would say yeah that makes sense but yeah i, I just love even yeah like you said robert Carlos whole speech where he tells him like i had tuberculosis i was coughing up a damn near a pint of blood a day and now like and then he just takes this big drag off that rolled cigar this is batshit insane and then him painting the cross on his forehead with in blood before they fight like why what the fuck uh, the Jeffrey Jones uh, throat slicing scene is really upsetting. And then also the fact that Jeffrey Jones shows back up, I was genuinely surprised by. Like, we get a couple flashes of, like, something moving around. I'm like, oh, is Robert Carlyle, like, moving really fast? And it's like, oh, no, that twist. I did not see that coming, like, at all. Oh, and when you first see him and he's covered in dried blood all around the mouth and stuff. Like, it's so, like, oh, God. Like, what have they been doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so fucked up. Yeah, I didn't see that twist the first time I saw it either. Uh, and I remember thinking when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is kind of dumb. But I was also, you know, young and dumb. Uh, but now I'm like, it's a pretty well-earned, like, whoa, what the fuck is happening here? Like, it doesn't feel just like a plot device. Because, yeah, you see Jeffrey Jones get stabbed and get the uh, tomahawk to the back. But then that's it. You don't see him again. You don't see him actually die. You don't see anything. And then the only thing you see is Carlisle dragging the one kid into the cave. And that's all you get. Right. Yeah, I think that works because, like, I think if any of the other people had come back, there'd be almost a thing of like, well, this is Wendigo regenerative power really working, but they sell like Jeffrey Jones's death. Oh yeah. He's dying. Where it looks like just like that guy's not going to get back up. And it's like, no, he's like healthy and like lively. And it's just like able to move around so well. Um, Like, I think that's the thing is that they, they sell so much of like the brutal stuff that happens earlier to the degree that when it gets much more supernatural by the like conclusion of the movie, you do totally believe it. Um, but at the same time, it's all while keeping, like, some of this weird, like, silly tone to it. Like, I love how, like, at the end of this movie, where, like, that happens with, like, the bear trap and they both get hit. The, like, ending button of this is Martha looking in, seeing them both in the bear trap dead, and is like, no. And then she's yep, like, yep. <laughs> fuck that. Yep, fuck that. But in a way, too, you get it, because she's like, I'm not putting, because I don't want any of these guys to, like, live. So I'm just walking out so they can die. Fuck them. Right, and plus you also get the sentiment that at least, like, earlier on, like, the they do a great job of, like, selling at least the small relationship stuff with them, with uh, her and David Arquette. He's the only one that she gives a shit about. And the moment he dies, she has no emotional investment in this at all. Well, yeah, well, you gotta figure, yeah, because it was, like, her, George, and David Arquette's character were, like, a three-piece. Like, all they did was hang out and right. get stoned together. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I like that element too with like the 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 you know George and Martha characters where like they sell the fact that they aren't just like necessarily stereotypes. They're just like, well, we ha- we're here because like we have nowhere else to go because I don't know right. Westward expansion has destroyed like our homes basically. So we'll hang out with these people. And then even when like Guy Pierce is trying to question her about like, is there any way to stop the Wendigo? Is there anything we can do? And she's like, dude, no. There's no fucking thing you can do. You gotta give yourself over. Okay, I'm tired right. of all of you. Yeah, like it's you guys done, killed bro. my brother and you killed David Arquette. I have nothing. Fuck off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how good, like this Major Knox, what a fucking moron he is. I mean, yeah. it could be him, but I mean, the man had a beard. <laughs> you fucking <laughs> idiot. <laughs> so drunk. And I love that too, how like they, they sell the gaslighting element where like the only, uh, that trickery element where like that he's able to, uh, that Robert Carlyle is able to trick everybody by the fact that the only person who would recognize him who's alive at this point is the drunk. Because they established like David Arquette and Martha went off to go get supplies earlier and then, like, the Knox is once again a drunk, so it's like, there's no one who's going to be able to tell, like, prove Guy Pierce's side of the story. Right. But except, but they have that major moment where you're like, oh, shit, they got him. You know what the Major Knox, you said you struck him in the shoulder, but there'd be a wound, wouldn't there? And they have, there's yes. nothing. It's great. It's fucking great. Yeah, they, they do a really good job, especially also of, like, selling that, like, Guy Pierce believes in this so well, but also, he's been so off the bend, and he has eaten a bit of Neil McDonough at this point. That you're like, is he fucking crazy? Is that actually the twist of this? That he's like fucking nuts? They give you at least enough of that like weird thing until Robert Carlyle like fully unmasked just like, nods nah, me. You were right. Fuck you. I'm here. And yeah, until that speech outside. When, that night, I think, where he goes outside because he, where they find David Arquette. It's that night. Where he's outside and yes. he confronts him outside. And he's just giggling at him and laughing at him gleefully. It's like, oh, he got you, man. You're fucked. The thing that works best about Robert Carlyle, I think, uh, in this movie, too, and pretty much any other time he's played a villain, because like I said, he's really good at it. He's such a little guy. Like, he's not a big guy. He's short. He's real skinny. He's But there's just something about him. I don't know if it's his eyes, because his eyes are really sort of haunting, though deep brown, almost black. But there's just something about him that just really is kind of off-putting and intimidating. He kind of has, like, the, you know, the version of sort of, like, Wolverine you hear about in the comics where he's, like, a small guy, but he has all this, like, pent-up, like, wiry energy that really works. Like, that's what works to me about him in, like, train spotting, where you see him with, like, everybody in that group, and you're like, oh, he's, like, part one of the guys, it's fine. And then as that movie goes along, I'm like, oh, no, he's way more. He is an unhinged maniac. Yeah, there's, there's, he's, he's literally a hair away at all times from just snapping. Right, and I and I think that's what's so interesting. Also, given we haven't talked much about the production of this movie, but um, apparently this went through all sorts of weird shit. Where there was an original director, uh, Milcho Malchevisk, you know, and did three weeks of shooting, but he wanted to do like new storyboards. And the production company Fox Two Thousand, which was the part of Fox that used to do like a lot of these kind of like lower tier budget kind of indie movies that were financed through them, apparently had like a lot of disagreements with them, and eventually that guy left. And what I love, and I can't believe this, like, they were going to put in, as this replacement director, Raja Gosnell, who was an editor previous to this of, like, the Home Alone movies, had directed Home Alone 3, and would go on to do, like, the Scooby-Doo movies and Smurfs 1 and 2. Like, he almost directed this movie. Oh my god. Like, what? (laughs) And then, and the cast revolted against that, so then Robert Carla recommended Antonia Bird. 
um, who apparently they had worked together on a lot of things, and she ended up directing the movie, but said that a lot of these same conflicts with, like, the studio happened throughout. So basically she said that, like, no, I don't think it was uh, the first director's fault. I just think, like, the studio was constantly trying to, like, rework things. and complete. So, like, there was a lot of studio meddling. We've talked about that plenty of times, like, studio meddling kind of movies, where you can see it on the screen, like, oh, it's terrible. And, like, in this case, I think you can see it, but also the movie's so weird that you almost can't tell if, like, oh, no, I think this makes sense for this movie. Like, this weird sudden change with, like, the music or the performances or the tone, any of these things with this movie. Uh, I guess it makes sense because this movie's just, like, constantly weird enough and yet has enough of a through line of a story where it's just like, sure, let's throw this. So it's a rare instance of studio meddling not hindering a production or anything. That confusion actually kind of helping it, maybe? Like I said, this movie is so fucking weird, man. I can't think of another movie that's kind of like Ravenous. Ravenous is definitely its own thing. And maybe the production bullshit lends to it being just this weird, mismatch, like, tonally kind of crazy movie. But I think that's what also endears it to me and makes it one that there's very few people that I know that have seen this who don't like it. Like, I know friend of the show, Rafe Telch, did it on his show, and he liked it, but he hated the score. But he did like the yeah. movie. But it's just one of those movies that could only exist in this time. I mean, you might get away with making it again now, but I, I don't know. Uh, and, and also, it is unsellable. And I think that's why I love it, too. Because there's no, nothing about this movie that, like, even you got to tell people who I've recommended to, like, just go in. I, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just, I think you'll like it. Watch it. Yeah, because it's hard even from, like, the various different genre perspectives with this, because it's kind of a Western. It's kind of a war movie. It's kind of a horror movie. It's kind of a comedy. But right. I don't know how many of those subsections, like, there's not a huge Venn diagram for this movie. No, right. Yeah, there's no pie chart that breaks those things up equally. Like, no. you take the pie chart, put the colors, and then swirl them all around. It'd be this weird tie-dye thing. <laughs> like, it's just a bunch of crazy shit. I guarantee you, even if you haven't seen it and you're listening to us talk about it, we're probably not describing it adequately enough for what you might take from it. Right, yeah, it's a hard movie to even, like, even though we're describing things, like, there's just certain weird, bizarre details. Like, I love, we haven't talked much about Jeremy Davies and his character who's, like, the sort of religious person in the group. Yeah, I love um, him in this. I love him. Right, and he, and he talks very quietly. He barely says anything mm-hmm. above a whisper. You barely hear in his dialogue. And, like, his fate is so bizarre where, like, Robert Carlo is about to kill him. And he's just, like, quivering there. And he has a gun he could use to shoot, but he's just, like, terrified. And Robert mm-hmm. Carlo just, like, leans in and says, run. And then he runs. And then that banjo music plays. Yep. It's so fucking bizarre. Well, just how disturbing the, he was licking me. Right. Like that moment, you're like, oh, God, what the fuck? But in that moment, the Jeremy Davies character, like, oh, he was licking me. And then um, Neil McDonough comes in and Jeremy Davies like, yes, kill him, kill him, do it. Like instantly, like, goodbye, man of God, kill this motherfucker. Like, if anything, like, I think the closest we have to this in like a modern cinematic landscape is something like Robert Eggers with specifically The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse, I think, has a lot of similar weird tonal elements. Yeah. Where go from like... Yeah. Like, sort of, like, funny to horrific to, like, this grand, sweeping, epic kind of thing or whatever. I I could, I actually think that's an apt comparison, even though they're no way similar plot-wise. But right, as, well, far, even like the, the, as far as, the like, to thing try is like, to describe it to somebody, you kind of got to be like, just watch it. Right, and the thing is, like, with Eggers, he has more of, like, a, like, sort of a honed-in style. 
that I think makes people sort of excuse that a bit more. It's like, well, it's in black and white and it feels like this like very consistent vision of like one director as opposed to this movie is so like weirdly piecemeal that I think that might also be a deterrent where even somebody who likes The Lighthouse would be like, well, this doesn't look like The Lighthouse and doesn't like feel like that same thing. But, but I, I feel totally kind of... it's very close. I, I think you're right. kind of hitting on something there. Right, I think tonally as well. But I think that also lends us an interesting different element where with the snowy element of it, I think because like this was made in 99, so it's pre-the like the digital age, I think this is like the last time you could have made a movie like this on film, actual like physical film, because it has like a completely different quality. Like when they're going around the mountains and you have that one bit where Jeremy Davies initially gets hurt and he like falls down that fucking cliff, you feel like the claustrophobia because... It, you can tell that, like, oh, the, the film crew had to bring a giant-ass camera and canisters of film up a fucking mountain so they could film Jeremy Davies, like, falling over because it's just expensive enough to look professional, but also not expensive enough to be, oh, they could fake that mountain set. Like, nope, that's a real mountain that Jeremy Davies fell down part of. It's funny because I've kind of always thought of this because I, I am a claustrophobe, not to the point where, like, some people are, but I don't like things over my head. I kind of have to have a window cracked in the car at all times, stuff like that. And I think this movie hits a, a, a notch that's not really necessarily talked about. Claustrophobia in wide open spaces is terrifying. And this movie does that. Like, they're on the mountains. They're in that fort. It's a big area, all that. But you still feel claustrophobic. Like, oh, my God, I can't escape. That's terrifying. When you can right. look out endless and you can't see anything. Especially when it becomes more snowy to fit the yeah. topic of the show. You, you have nothing but just white. Also, the claustrophobia, like, the bit where Neil McDonough and Guy Pierce go into the cave and Neil McDonough actually goes down, he discovers the bodies. Like, that's also terrifying from, like, a spelunking kind of attitude. Like, this this almost feels like the descent for me. Like, nope, I wouldn't go down there. No way. No, 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 no. That's maybe one of the reasons why this movie kind of always stuck with me, too, to where I get pure enjoyment out of this movie because of the wackiness, but there's also that sense of dread every time I watch it. And I think, you know... Hey, I think we just talked something out here, and uh, your check's in the mail. If you want therapy, <laughs> go over to doubleedgedjeffabilla.gmail.com, email, we'll have a session. I got three more minutes, we haven't reached the hour mark yet. Oh, that's true, yes. So, uh, please, tell me about your mother. I don't, I don't like her. Well, we solved that. <laughs> You're right, yeah, there you go. Alright, so anyways, I don't like anybody. I think that's part of why this movie has always stuck with me. i almost 100% positive I didn't see it at the show. But I know I saw it right away when it came out on home video. Because uh, I was a big, I, I really like uh, Guy Pierce. I've liked him. I still like him. I champion him all the time. And so I'm like, oh, this looks fucking crazy and wild. And it probably would have been on video like right around the same time as like Memento. Exactly. I think Memento is the first time I saw Guy Pierce. Most um, people like most people. That, yeah. And I remember the, you know, Guy Pierce, Robert Kylo, David Arquette, it's him laughing while hitting the peace pipe. You get the idea, like, maybe they're cannibals. Maybe it's a vampire thing. Like, the trailer is really, like, loose. And but I think it has, like, a metal score, which is a big problem. But I'm like, uh, all right, are, I are you saying they were having a rough time trying to sell this movie at him? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I'm like, I got to see this. So I rented it, like, right away. And uh, I was just enamored instantly. I'm like, this is the weirdest shit I've ever seen. Like, what the fuck is this? It's definitely one of those, uh, when it first came out, that I was showing to people. Because I was, like, 16, 17. And I was showing it to anybody who would want to watch it with me. I'm like, you got to see this weird movie. Like, I remember one night, this kid I never, I barely knew, was like, hey, have you ever seen Videodrome? You got to watch Videodrome. So I'm like, all right, we watch Videodrome. I'm like, that movie is weird. Have you seen Ravenous? He's like, no. So I put in Ravenous. He's like, 
that might have been weirder. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, because it's so fucking crazy. Because Video Drone is nuts, but it's got a fucking thorough plot line, which this one does too. But Video Drone follows a specific tone throughout, where this one, like we said, is all over the map. And yet you still are kind of there for the ride. Yeah, and I think it's just because, like, while, like, it has, like, all these, like, weird elements, at the same time, there is that basic kind of, like, like you mentioned, like, the consistent kind of, like, dread and fascination with just, like, I just gotta know how the fuck this keeps going, because this is already, like, it starts off very odd with even, like, the opening bit of, um... Guy Pierce like getting his congressional medal of honor and the weird score where apparently with um as weird as stuff from Auburn is in the score uh Nyman apparently did a thing where like he got a bunch of like the there's it's kind of like that orchestra where basically you have a bunch of people who either don't know instruments very well or are playing instruments they're not that familiar with to play like that opening bit with like the traditional like like early American war hymns and that makes a lot of sense because it sounds off putting. <laughs> And weird in a way that fits for, like, oh, he's in the middle of, like, this, like, military ceremony where, like, they're eating giant things of meat, but it's, like, disgusting and vile. And the whole military street is, like, such garbage. Like, it's weird. It's an interesting kind of, like, anti-America movie as well. Or, like, by the end of it where you have, like, the westward expansion element where they're talking about, like, oh, yeah, Manifest Destiny is going to bring a bunch of people over here and they're going to be searching for gold. We'll lead them to the gold pans. So it's just like, oh, shit, we're going to just basically, like, take advantage of American greed to consume in our own right. I think that's another fascinating element to this, where it's just like, it's this big, colossal, like, and never-ending cycle of feeding frenzy, basically. From greed, and stupidity, and insane monstrousness. It feels, uh, you know, like the American dream. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. <sighs> the American dream. Oh, God. But no, you're 100% right about the score, too. Like, it's weird. It's like, like the almost like a presidential sort of march scored yet there's some asshole playing a fucking bassoon and didgeridoo you know like like throwing it out there or somebody banging on an oil drum uh yeah it is really off-putting uh but like i said the score it's really fucking cool man i love the opening score you know the sort of the bing 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 that kind of runs throughout the whole movie because it's at first you're like oh this is really good like but depending on what scene it plays over it takes like a sinister tone like, it's just, it's one of those that just really works, but... But, but particularly the ending bit, like, after, like, the, the you see, like, the last shot of uh, Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle, that music that plays over the end credits is really good. It's very good. It's very, very good. I agree. Um, but yeah, we've definitely talked about this movie much more than we have the other one. So let's go well, ahead big and shocker. our final thoughts about Ravenous, Adam. Uh, like I said, Ravenous is one of those that I've always liked since I've seen it. It's one that I can just occasionally throw on maybe every two, three years and still have a really good time. Like, I just rewatched this a couple nights ago for the show, and I had a fucking blast. It's just, there's nothing really like it that I've seen. I I just think it's super fun. I think it's a perfect time capsule movie in a weird way, but I also think it's bolstered by just great performances, particularly Robert Carlyle, like I said. It's just a weird, strange little movie that it's so hard to sort of pigeonhole and recommend and in describe what it is that it also has a very like this is my movie feeling like this oh this movie is special because only i uh, you know but it belongs to me it's so cool like not to take on that like oh you're poser if you like ravenous sort of fucking mentality because that's not what i am the gatekeeper of ravenous yeah none of that i'm not right i'm not trying to gatekeep ravenous but it's a such it's a movie that's designed in such a way that it it feels like it belongs to you because 
who the hell else are you going to recommend and show this to? It, it's just so crazy and bizarre, but I love it. And I strongly recommend it to anybody who's maybe not necessarily deep into like horror genre films or anything like that. Uh, but if you're on the cusp or you like maybe dark comedies or just weird cinema, then I definitely think this is one uh, that I would throw throw to you. Yeah, like I said, if you're a kid who likes the Bones and All and the Robert Eggers pictures, uh, I think this would be up your alley, I would say. Because that's the thing, is like this movie feels like, it's interesting where you mentioned the time capsule element. I think the biggest thing that sort of dates it in 1999 for me, even more than like the film element or like the cast or any of that other stuff, is like the fact that this is a movie that like got $12 million is fucking baffling like in this modern climate where like if a movie vaguely like this were to get any money it would be kind of like the lighthouse which i believe only had like it had like a much smaller budget than even that like the where like this would be much more of like an a24 sort of like weird horror movie as opposed to like what this is and the fact that it got like i said 12 million dollars in 1999 to be able to do that is still like crazy all right to be fair lighthouse 11 million dollar budget but still, that's for two, 2019 as opposed to, like, with inflation, this movie's actually, like, what, like, $25 million now? No way! <laughs> it gets that much right, money. Yeah, not, not gonna happen. No way. Right, for sure, for sure. But, um, yeah, so at the same time, like, that's what makes it so, like, fascinating with, like, all the weird tonal shift elements. It's really great and very bizarre cast. It's just, it's all this, like, very bizarre, fascinating packaging that won't be for everybody, but... I'm I'm glad it kind of had at least it has at least a bit of that like cult status because I had heard about this movie for a while. It's just like oh you know what's an underrated gem, ravenous, really grand rated gem. And having finally seen it, yeah, I'm I'm part of that camp. Just like it's a very fun, weird, underrated gem of a movie that I would recommend to certain freaks out there like us. But now, Adam, uh, let's get into our weekly segment, the double redo with the best theme song ever. Double redo. Double, double redo, double redo, double double redo, double 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 his cousin Marvin Berry had Michael Marvin, J. Fox here. You know that <laughs> terrible sound you've been looking for? <laughs> looking for? Well, listen, listen to this. We're here to talk about our weekly segment, The Double Redo, uh, in which every week uh, Adam and I recommend a good and a bad movie related to the topic in question. Uh, so each of us has a good and a bad choice for snowy suspense in this case. And Adam, you're going to first. What are your choices for uh, the snowy suspense double redo? All right, man. So uh, for my good, I have one that I feel like I've talked about in the show before. And if I haven't, I apologize because it's great. Uh, at least for me, it's one that I, the trailer was one of the most exciting trailers I've seen in a long time when it came out. And what I'm talking about is uh, the adaptation of the Steve Niles comic, uh, 30 Days a Night, which, you know, if you want to talk about a movie that makes sort of the darkness and the snow its own force, like this definitely is that. I think it's a probably one of the more original sort of vampire type movies that have come out in a long time where they're not super romantic. There's no sort of alluring aspect about them i think they're just these savage beasts that literally like non people like they're sharks in a frenzy i think it's a really cool movie like is it a five out of five no of course not but i think it's really kind of well shot i think david slade 
is a pretty good director and this was like a really good outing from him in particular the one shot of where it's almost like a helicopter shot or an overhead shot of the vampire sort of attacking all the sort of uh villagers or whatever you want to call townspeople i think ben foster's really crazy and weird in it probably my favorite danny houston next to another movie that it's a really really cool dark violent vampire movie that has a pretty fun cast too um like i said not the greatest movie you ever see but certainly if you haven't seen it i think it's a really interesting take on vampires and then for my bad i had a movie that i just watched uh, pretty recently with i'd say within the last like three to six months um, it's called Deadfall. It's like this weird crime thriller that uh, has an incredible cast behind it. I mean, it's Eric Bana, Olivia Wilde, uh, Charlie Hunnam, Chris Christopherson, Sissy Spacek, Kate Mara, Treat Williams. I mean, it just kind of goes on and on and on. And ultimately, what it learns itself to be is just a story that gets away from them. You can tell. It, it's supposed to be like a crime thriller uh, starring Eric Bana and Olivia Wilde as a brother and sister. Maybe there's incest there. Maybe they're not actually brother and sister, but they're criminals that like robbed a bank and then like they have to split up. Charlie Hunnam finds Olivia Wilde and they get romantically involved and Eric Bana comes looking for her. Like this whole fucking convoluted yet simple thing, but they, they tried too much to make the parts that inherently wouldn't be interesting, interesting. And it just really falls flat on its face, unfortunately, with especially with that cast. And anytime Eric Bana really like sort of tries to chew it up as a villain, he's fun. Like in this, he's the best in it. But the rest of it is just really, really doesn't work. And it takes place in I God, I forget where, but it's like it's a horrible snowstorm and Eric Bana gets lost. He gets frostbite, you know, that type of shit. Yeah, um, I haven't seen your bad pick of Deadfall, though when you messaged to me, to me initially, I was confused and thought, wait, is this the Nicolas Cage movie where he looks like Tony Clifton? But different Deadfall. You're talking about the 2012 Deadfall as opposed to the 1993 Deadfall. Correct. From Where all those weird Nicolas Cage clips come from. Um, but I have seen 30 Days of Night. I like aspects of it. I think it's David Slade who directed it, and I think there's some like stylistic stuff that's fun in that movie. And I do agree Danny Houston, I think, is quite good as that version of the vampire. I just have the problem of, like, I really don't give a single fuck about, like, any of those characters in that movie. I think, like, the townspeople, they, they try and do, like, a carpenter thing where you're like, oh, you get, like, this a sense of the town and who these people are, and then, like, everything gets barricaded. And they feel, like, so paper-thin. It doesn't help, like, I'm not a huge fan of, like, Josh Hartnett or Ballista George in general. And I think they're kind of whatever. There's other people, like, Ben Foster, who I, you know, is very hit or miss for me. Sometimes I think he's an amazing actor. Sometimes I think he's just here to feed himself on scenery kind of thing. And I think this is more the latter, honestly, in this case. Uh, but, yeah, it's not a bad movie, I would agree. I think it's, like, it's a decent watch. It doesn't really leave, like, a huge impression on me beyond, like, Danny Houston, especially... The bit where he confronts somebody and they're like begging for like, please God, and he's like, no God, and then eats them. That's a really fun moment. There's fun oh, that's moments. The, yeah, that's but... the moment that sold the trailer. I mean, obviously, right. yes, that yeah. was also in the trailer a lot for sure. Yes, but um, overall, yeah, I you know, it's it's it's. I think it's more of a mixed bag to me. Uh, I I'm not as quite in your positive camp with that one. So, do you want me to messenger you Instagram message or email you my resignation letter? I mean. <laughs> I'll accept it in audio form here, I guess. In the goodbye. No, 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 I'm going to write, uh, you know what? On parchment, and I'll send it to you with a wax seal that's just a middle oh finger. 
Great. So I guess we'll be still doing the show for at least another like three weeks until that gets here by carrier pigeon. It's the U.S. Postal Service. We got at least a month. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but, but yeah. Uh, but it's time for me to do my double reduce choices here for snowy suspense. Uh, so my a good pick I have is another one where there's a couple, like, actually, both these movies have, like, a weird thing where there's two different movies that are called uh, by its particular title, but the first one I'm talking about is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo from 2011, uh, which was the one directed by David Fincher, starring Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara, um, and uh, this is a movie that, like, I revisited fairly recently this week, just because I'm like, well, I haven't seen it since the theater, and I was kind of lukewarm about it when I initially saw it in the theater, especially because I was such a huge fan of at least Numero Paz in the first versions of these movies. Um, and, uh, I will say, I think it shot up a lot more when I revisited it recently. Uh, if you're unaware, this is, like, the stuff with, uh, Elizabeth Salander, um, who is this character that, like, is this, uh, private investigator who does a lot of hacking stuff, but, uh, it mainly follows Daniel Craig, um, as this journalist who has gotten some hot water for making some accusations about somebody that he's not revealing necessarily the sources and whatnot, so he goes off, um, into hiding after he gets an invitation from this, uh, guy who's part of this big rich family that owns like a lot of publishing companies and like a big fertilizing plants, some other stuff, uh, who's played by Christopher Plummer, who hires him to investigate about the decades long disappearance of his sister. Um, and it's been going on since like the 60s. She disappeared and he wants uh, Daniel Craig to try and find her. And while Daniel Craig's on that case on his own, we also follow the Elizabeth Salander character who has been awarded the state. Um, and she has a new guardian of the state uh, who was recently uh, had a stroke and so now she has an even newer garden who does horrible things uh, and blackmails her, and she gets her vengeance in a very justified, brutal way. Um, and basically, it's this movie that has like a lot of this like sort of sleek David Fincher style, but I think it feels a bit more like blockbuster mainstream than a lot of Fincher's other movies. Uh, if you can, you know, as much as that can be necessarily, depending on the movie. And I think it's like a very sleek, entertaining, fascinating, like, mystery thriller movie that has some problems, I think particularly just from, like, the books that it's based on. This is also a problem I have with the, at least the original, the uh, 2009 Swedish movie as well. That um, both of them have that weird thing where the movie kind of ends, and then it goes on for another, like, 30 minutes so they can wrap up even more stuff about the story. That I'm not huge on necessarily, but there's a lot of like awesome, sleek, stylish stuff from Fincher. Great performances from Craig, and particularly Mara. This was the first time really I saw Mara and was like, oh my god, she's like an incredible actress. She really disappears into this part. Um, an amazing score from Trent Rasner and Atticus Ross. Um, other great people show up like Stellan Skarsgård and Christopher Plummer. Um, it's a very entertaining, especially with the snowy element of it. It's one of those movies where there's not as much like actual snow. But you get the sense of cold, because obviously it takes place in, like, Sweden. And you feel, like, that constant sense of, like, everybody's got to wear a jacket in order to survive. And it's just, like, this constant sort of, like, dread that we're mentioning. Like, really helps to build up, like, the tension of this mystery. Uh, while at the same time, it's pulpy, entertaining, and very disturbing all at once. And I think it's something that only, like, a Fincher could really mix together so well. And then my bad pick is uh, more of, like, a low-budget feature. And uh, it is Frozen... No, not the 2013 Disney movie. Uh, this is the 2010 movie from director Adam Green. And uh, if you're unaware of this, basically it follows three college students, um, including Iceman himself uh, from the X-Men movies. They go up to snowboard at this big hill You know, while they're there. Um, they mostly uh, have to serve with uh, Emma Bell, who plays like the girlfriend of one of the guys. Um, who is, like, not as experienced with snowboarding, so, like, they go on the bunny hill for a while, so the extreme sports heads dudes are like, okay, we're gonna, like, it's almost closing, and this place is gonna close for, like, a week, because, like, of inclement weather, but we're gonna go up the last ski lift 
up to the top of like the actual extreme mountain so we could do one last snowboard and then leave. Uh, but the trouble is, uh, while they're there, um, the place starts closing up because of the inclement weather, and the staff ends up leaving, and they are stuck on the ski lift. And like I said, there's nobody that's going to be there for like a week, and it's a lot of sort of like a survival story about trying to get out of the situation. There's a you know a lot of tension with like them up on the ski lift, and some somebody tries to like go down, and there's like horrible implications to that as well. It's a movie I'd heard a lot about, especially when it premiered at Sundance originally. Um, it got a lot of like oh people were like fainting in the audiences and stuff like that. But I hadn't seen it until like earlier this week, uh, once again for the show. There's a lot of stuff I give it credit for, particularly with its very small budget. I give them a lot of credit for, they actually shot up on, like, a big ski lift in, like, Utah. So a lot of the shots were, like, they're actually up in the ski lift. There's no set. There's no green screen. It's those three actors that are actually up there in, like, a big ski lift. And there's a lot of impressive, like, low-budget filmmaking there, even especially when some of the gory stuff happens. There's a lot of, like, ooh, like, squeaky stuff with another, like, you know, sort of bone coming out of the leg kind of element to it. There's fascinating stuff there, but it feels like it's an interesting premise in search of stuff to, like, fill out. For even like it's 93 minutes long and it feels like it's kind of stretching and like the characters aren't interesting enough to keep you engaged for that amount of time and i think also just adam green is one of those guys where he's done like the hatchet movies and like digging up the marrow there's a couple of those movies i like but he kind of comes from the weird post kevin smith school of especially like genre filmmakers where like a lot of the dialogue is just like referencing pop culture shit like especially there's a point where, like, the, the guy who plays Iceman, who I forgot his name, the actor, but they do a whole thing while they're up there, but like, oh, what's your greatest fear? Like, pass the time. And he's like, oh, man, the Sarlacc pit. I wouldn't want to go down near that thing. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. That's great. Uh, it feels very much like a movie, like, sort of of its time in a way where, like, there's a lot of impressive stuff to the filmmaking and the craft that's there for its low budget. But uh, also it feels kind of like a movie that was popular for a bit in the early two 2010s and then kind of came and went. With, I think, good reason. It's not very memorable. Uh, yeah, I've seen both your picks. Uh, I agree with the girl with the drag tattoo. I think it's this weird, sort of pulpy thriller with moments of just brutality. I think Rooney Mara is amazing in it. I'd say her and Skarsgård probably are the, the tops in it because they're on such different ends of the spectrum. Uh, I think uh, Daniel Craig's fine. He's good. Uh, I, I think uh, the actor who played him in the original was better. Um, who was also, you know, in John Wick and... Uh, uh, yeah, Michael Nyquist, R.I.P. Yeah, Michael Nyquist, he was great. Great character actor. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked that movie. And the score is brilliant. And also, I didn't mention the opening credit sequence in that movie. Amazing. Oh, so Set good. To the, the so cover good. of the Immigrant Song. So good, yeah. So good. Uh, but then Frozen, yeah, I agree with you on the Adam Green of it all. Um, I liked Adam Green uh, for a long time. Uh because I really got into like new upcoming horror. Like there was Adam Green, Ty West, uh, Joe Lynch, all these guys that were coming out and they're like going to be the new faces of horror. And then Adam Green came straight out the gate with like Hatchet and Hatchet is super fun. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, then it got to the point where I started, you know, and I'm not trying to badmouth anybody, but I started following him on his podcast, things like that. And he just, I, I started disagreeing with a lot of his sort of stances on things. Uh, so I kind of stopped like giving a shit. Frozen was one that got a little bit more mainstream attention uh, than a lot of them did. So I was like, oh, I got to see it. And the guy, you were talking about Sean Ashmore, by the way, uh, yes. who was Iceman. And uh, yeah, other there's a couple scenes in it that are pretty brutal. Like the jump scene with the legs, brutal. The wolf scene, pretty hardcore. Our Matt, uh, uh, not great. 
Um, I think Adam Green works the best when he's making sort of, for a lack of better term, because I don't even like using this term, but grindhouse style violent movies. Uh, I think he's got a really good eye for that. But uh, yeah, just Frozen was ultimately kind of just, it exists. I saw it. I'm good. Yeah, and I would argue of like that kind of the quote unquote grindhouse kind of filmmakers you mentioned. I would say Joe Lynch has had a much more consistent career. I think oh no, so he's the, he's got the best. He's the best out of all of them so far, at least out of those guys. Uh, Joe Lynch has produced, but, some but even Ty West stuff. has had you know some pretty fun stuff recently with uh, Pearl and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, Pearl, House of the Devil, The Innkeepers. Ty West has produced some good shit. I just don't like Ty West. True in general, but yeah, I think uh, Lynch has a, a bit more of a track record as opposed to. Adam Green being like, I'm going to make three Patchett movies and produce like a third one and stuff like that. And just like, oh, okay. Yeah, he did the first two, two produced the third, directed the fourth. Yeah. Then he had Frozen, uh, Chillerama. Uh, um, Digging Up the Marrow, which I would say is my favorite of his movies. Digging Up the Marrow. That movie's very interesting. I think it's very interesting. I have two pro- huge problems with that movie. Uh, a, it should have been Ray Wise. B, Adam Green is not a good actor. He's terrible. I agree with necessarily Adam Green's not a great actor, but I think that's contrasted with Ray Wise is a great actor. <laughs> and I think he's so great in that movie. Right, but I think it would have worked if you got maybe a virtual unknown because nobody's going to watch that and think, oh, this is real. And that's why he said he didn't want to cast an unknown as that character because people might believe it's real. Nobody's going to watch that and think it's real. I think even if you had an unknown, I don't think I would have believed that movie was real necessarily. Right, that's what I'm saying. Get an unknown so you can lean into the, oh my god, oh, this is crazy. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm more just like, I, I, no matter who was cast, I wouldn't have believed it was real, so I prefer getting like a really good actor as opposed uh, to like, I mean, that's authenticity, fair. whatever, it's a fucking movie. Yeah, <laughs> I, a, I really don't Yeah, care. that's fair. No, that's fair. Uh, but anyway, anyway, we, we're, we're getting off track here, so uh, let us do uh, repeat our titles to everybody out there in case they uh, missed them. Uh, Adam? Uh, for my good, I had 30 Days of Night, and for my bad, I had Deadfall, 2012. And uh, for my good, I had The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo 2011. And for my bad, I had Frozen 2010. Don't you love that when you have to put brackets around a movie to differentiate what you were talking about? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, I do want to throw in uh, for your pick. You can avoid the sequels, and especially The Girl with the Spider's Web. Don't need to see No, I, I, I saw both of at least the, the ones to the Swedish movie. Yeah. Um, and I was not a fan of those. No. And I heard... Gr- and Girl with the Spider's Web, I heard, was just like a movie that does not exist, really. It's terrible. No, it's terrible. Uh, but yeah, let's go into uh, our ending here where we'll uh, be doing some thank yous and stuff. But stay tuned. At the very end, we'll be picking our movies for next week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but we want to thank some people first, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. For more of his great stuff on various socials. And of course, uh, thanks to our loyal Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash DEDBpod. Where for just $1 a month, you get uh, access to bonus podcasts. We record uh, usually at least one a month. And then also you get to vote in polls. And uh, right now, uh, you'd be able to uh, do both of those things. Because uh, you know we're recording this on Friday the 13th. Unfortunately, Friday the 13th has passed by the time this episode's come out, but you can still listen to our audio commentary where Adam and I talk uh, along with the Friday the 13th remake from 2009. Had a fun time talking about that movie and, you know, horror remakes from around that, that turn of the millennium and the franchise in general and Trent, our beloved Trent. Trent. Trent's the shit. Trent's so good. But 
uh, along with listening to that audio commentary, you can also vote in a poll, because uh, we put out these polls for you to you know, either vote for individual movies we cover or topics that we cover. And uh, the day after this episode goes up on the Wednesday, you'll all be able to vote uh, for uh, the tie-in topic we'll be doing for the week of Creed 3 coming out. Uh, you all have to vote between our two potential topic choices for that of boxing films. We've done sports films before, but specifically films that majorly involve boxing as a plot element versus spinoffs, because obviously Creed is a spinoff of the Rocky franchise. So uh, those two are going in for a bout, and uh, who knows who will win at the end of that fight. I'm pushing for boxing, but it's going to be spinoffs. I think when we get to our topic for next week, that's proof that the Patreon poll can go anywhere. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so y'all, like I said, for the $1 a month, can listen to bonus podcasts like that one or vote in polls like that one and help out the show immensely. But uh, for more of us, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDVpod. And you can also submit feedback to us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and letterboxes at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. You can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of our audio antics, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? Uh, and uh, you can also dig into the archives in our Podbean main feed for several, like, almost 200 episodes uh, before we even joined Talk Film Society. And while I'm talking about Talk Film Society, I just want to shout out for them. Uh, over on Talk Film Society, they have uh, the annual Talk Film Society Awards, where basically uh, if you go over to talkfilmsoc.com slash tfsawards, uh, you can put in your own ballot for the Talk Film Society Awards, where, uh, you know, you can put in your picks for uh, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Ensemble, Best Director. Like, they have a bunch of stuff. You can leave stuff blank if you don't feel comfortable put, filling up everything. That's cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're looking for votes, and the deadline is January 20th, so the Friday this episode comes out. So we'd recommend everybody go out there uh, to that URL. I'll probably put it in the show notes as well. Help out Talk Film Society. Put in your submissions. It might end up getting you on the final ballot that everybody gets to vote for later in award season. Yeah, talk films, good peeps. So uh, help us out. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, if you can't do the, you know, the Patreon to help us out, that's cool. Money can be tight. We understand. But the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. Yeah, you guys are starting to dry up out there. And I, I've noticed. I've noticed. So I'm just, just going to start getting way more hostile on the show way more hostile and it's going to make it very uncomfortable for everyone including me i'm just sitting here just like oh, oh no especially you no no I'm, I'm i'm coming at you next week even though i share the show i'm like the one person who consistently shares the show maybe even more than you do no definitely more than i do but you're not gonna have a good time <laughs> i get the brunt of it because i do share it more how dare you be the only one my name's Anna thompson fuck you thomas you fuck that's what it's going to be. The every intro from now on is going to be that at the start of the show. Well, now you said that I'm making it a thing, and then I'm also going to be like, fuck you, Thomas, you fuck. By the way, have you played Raid Shadow Legends? If you join now, you get exclusive Ronda Rousey champion. And I'm sure Mr. McGorm's going to show up all your favorite characters you're going to run into the ground like you've done previously. Oh, Mr. McGorm, I completely forgot. See, I forgot him. That's your fault. 
Hey kids, Beppa B. Well, Adam, now it's time for us to mercifully end this episode by doing our picking for next week. Because every week, Adam and I, you know, pick, you know, a good and a bad feature. We switch up on the quality of who has the two good and two bad choices every week. We kind of flip-flop on that. And uh, we assign each of our choices number between 1 and 10. And the other person has to pick. So they'll say, "Um, I'm going to pick number three and we'll say okay that's closest to number one which is this particular choice uh so that's how we get our good and our bad feature but keep in mind there is the godfather rule where adam and i each have a single veto in our back pocket to use uh at least we were given one uh back in may uh, a veto in our back pocket to use uh you know at some point if we hear a choice that we pick and we're like you know what i don't want to actually cover that movie so actually i'll take the cannoli we just say that and then that choice is gone. We gotta go with whatever other choice is there. I have used my veto already. Adam still has his burning a hole in his back pocket. So he might be able to use it for my two bad choices, uh, as we will cover here for next week's topic, which, as I kind of teased earlier, was picked uh, by our patrons. Um, though it ties into, there's a couple movies coming out for the celebrated, lauded, lovely actress who has uh, shown her chops for like the last you know 30 years or so. Uh, We're covering Miss Julianne Moore. Yeah, she's fucking cool, man. She's she's always been sort of like a mainstay, like in a in a weird way, not like a huge like movie star mainstay, but like she's always been like. Anytime you see her, you're like, oh, Julianne Moore, cool. Not necessarily great performances, but you always feel good to see her. She's constantly working in uh, various different projects, and she has a lot of interesting range. Uh, some of it works, some of it doesn't. We'll talk about that uh, with our choices. So, Adam, you have the two good choices. I've got the two bad. So I'll start here for your uh, two good choices. I'm going to pick number seven. Okay. At number nine, I have uh, a movie that, you know, I think most people have seen, but it also is filled with like just great performances all around and not to discredit hers at all. She's wonderful in it, but it's definitely an ensemble piece. I have Boogie Nights. Hell yeah, Boogie Nights. Cool. Great. So on board. Yeah, hell, hot take, great movie. Love that yeah. movie. Yeah, for real. Yes, yes. Uh, but what was your other choice? Oh, at number two, I had another movie, which uh, I hope you watch uh, before we get to it, which I'm sure you will. You'll probably watch like 800 Julianne Moore movies. Um, <laughs> but uh, I have Still Alice, which is probably one of the most heartbreaking performances I've ever seen her give. But it's amazing. But it was one that I'm like, I'm kind of glad you didn't pick it. Although if you did, there'd be enough to talk about. But if you would have, we're going to cry. So I think we kind of lucked out. I remember when she was nominated and ended up winning her first Oscar for that movie. Uh Um, That was, I was very much in like Oscar catch-up mode around that time. And I was still just like, I don't know if I can fucking handle this, man. It's hardcore, dude. It's a lot. It's a lot. with, With what it's doing, yeah, for sure. But now Adam. For my two mm-hmm. bad choices. <sighs> I'll go number three. Okay. At number two, I have, uh, interestingly, the follow-up uh, to a very acclaimed movie in which uh, all love to Julianne Moore. She is highly miscast, um, as uh, even despite having a great supporting cast around her, great director, an iconic actor reprising his Oscar award-winning role uh, from Silence of the Lambs, I have Hannibal from 2001. Uh, I'm not taking the cannoli, 
because I may be one of those people where I still don't think it's great, but I don't hate it. I don't hate Hannibal. I'm curious, how long has it been since you've seen Hannibal? Quite a while. So, okay. that, <laughs> yeah, so that so might change. Thing. We'll see. That might change. We'll might see. change. Might change. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll be able to talk about that next time. But on the other side of things, at number nine, I had a movie uh, that is a bit more recent, uh, where apparently she plays the villain and is one of those like really infamous like disastrous bombs from like the last decade. Uh, though it stars Jeff Bridges and some kid I can't remember. I have Seventh Son. Oh fuck! Oh, we'd have nothing to talk about. Oh, <laughs> Seventh Son. Oh, a real fuck. wideout scenario with Seventh Son. Yeah, I want to say Seventh Son is. I think it's Ben Barnes. No, it's a terrible film. Yeah, I've, I've heard as much. And like I said, it bombed disastrously. Oof. And uh, yeah, it was Ben Barnes who was in the hey! role. Alicia Vikander's also in it. Wow, Kit Harrington. I'm probably the only person who remembers that it was Ben Barnes. So Ben Barnes, big <laughs> up, baby. Subscribe to the Patreon. But next time, we'll be talking about Boogie Nights and Hannibal. But until then, everybody, remember Whiteout? Because I don't. No, nothing. <laughs>